I want to welcome some special friends of mine. Um, Paul and Audrey and the family, the Fuller family are with us here today. Also the Crocker family. Uh, where are you? Good to see both of you again. I'm so glad to hear that you're moving back to Minnesota. It's been really made my day to hear that today. Just kidding, they're not moving back. I just thought I'd... Wishful thinking, but... Well, that last 30-second introduction does not count against my sermon time, so that's good. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, our prayer is that last song, that you would speak through your word to all of us. And it's really the prayer of Isaiah 55 that we pray this morning. Lord, may the word go forth today in this place and not return to you empty. May it accomplish what you purpose. May it succeed. May your word succeed in the thing for which you sent it. Make us to realize the gravity and the importance of the next few minutes together hearing the word of God. To him who has ears to hear, Lord, please let them hear. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Tomorrow we celebrate our freedom that we still enjoy in the United States of America. I agree that true freedom is under attack and perhaps it's temporary. But, but, there is a greater freedom. There is our, our freedom in Christ Jesus that is untouchable and eternal. And Jesus speaks of this freedom in John chapter 8 to some Jews who had believed in him. And he said in verse 31 to these Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth. And the truth will make you free. There is a connection between continuing in the Word of God and true freedom. There is a connection between understanding and knowing the truth and true freedom. There's a connection between knowing the truth in the heart and true freedom. Listen carefully. There's a connection between responding to the Word of God and true freedom. And I think this connection, the connection between responding to the Word of God and true freedom, is the theme of Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. And I want you to take your Bibles, if you have a copy of the Scripture or on the phone, and turn to Luke chapter 8. As we continue our exposition of this great book, I want you to find Luke chapter 8, and let's start in verse 1. Luke chapter 8 and verse 1. 
The text says in verse 1, soon afterwards, talking about Jesus, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. There it is. That summarizes the mission and the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ in one sentence. Proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. Proclaiming and preaching the word of God. Proclaiming and preaching the good news of the gospel. But the subject ultimately of the first 21 verses in Luke chapter 8, listen to this, is responding to the preaching and proclaiming of the kingdom of God. Responding to it. Take a look at it. Look at verse 18 of Luke chapter 8. Jesus says, so, take care how you listen. And then in verse 21 of Luke chapter 8, he answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. And so this theme of responding to the word of God really envelops this whole section And so when we come to the middle part, which is where we're starting today in verse 4, the very heart of verses 1 through 21, we come to probably, I would argue, the most important parable that Jesus ever preached. If you want to think of it this way, you could think of it as the parable of parables. It's called the parable of the sower. I think better term would be the parable of the soils. But the great theme of this parable is to give an explanation to all the various responses to the preaching and proclaiming of the kingdom of God. Why do some people reject? Why do some people receive? Why are some people on the fence? Let's read our passage then. We're going to read verses 4 through 15. Verse 4, when a large crowd was coming together and those from the various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable. The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture." Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. As he said these things, he would call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. His disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant. And he said, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart, so they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, 
receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in the time of temptation fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. If you have ears to hear this morning, please listen to the parable of the soils. Listen to the Word of God. We have to be careful how we listen to the Word of God, how we respond to the Word of God. We're going to unpack this theme in three sermons, and I have to admit that there are verses in this passage that keep us up at night. How about verse 10? And he said to, to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but the rest, it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. It's a difficult verse. And I know, I know you want to do what I want to do. You want to get to it. Let's get to the interpretation, will you? I want to hear about the devil and spiritual warfare in this whole thing. I want to hear about the persecution. Let's get to the pleasures, the deceitfulness of riches, and all of that. Get to the point, all of that in due time. This morning, I think it's absolutely crucial to slow down a little bit and try to, try to unpack verses 4 through 10 in five headings. Verses 4 through 10 in five headings. Really, I'm asking and answering five questions, but you're going to see these under headings, and then we're going to drive home, I hope, by God's grace, one important implication and just drive it home. That's what we're going to do. So first, then, a definition. If you have a handout, you can follow along and take notes. First, a definition. What is a parable? A definition. Look at verse 4. When a large crowd was coming together and those from various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable. The word parable means a comparison or likeness. And I think it's, I think many have said this, but I think it's helpful. A parable is an earthly story, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Let's start there. One Bible dictionary defines a parable this way. I think it was kind of good. A, a parable is a figure of speech in which truth is illustrated by a comparison or an example drawn from everyday experience, from everyday life. And that bringing from everyday life makes it very vivid and memorable in the mind. Now, most parables, I think, 
there's a single main point that Jesus is trying to press home on our hearts. Most parables, I think that's true. Now listen carefully, and now it gets technical. Now a parable could be a very simple, brief illustration in the middle of a very powerful, wordy sermon with all kinds of theological content. That could be a parable. Or a parable could be an extended analogy where really the parable itself is the teaching that Jesus has given. Hold on to that thought. Because that second one, an extended analogy, is the case in the parable of the soils. And that leads us to the second heading, an important question. Here we go. It's going to get complicated. Number two, an observation in all of this. First, a definition. Secondly, an observation. Here's the question. How are parables used in the book of Luke so far? Okay? Now, the first mention of a parable is in Luke chapter 5. The question is asked by why the disciples of, of, of John the Baptist often fast and, and the disciples of the Pharisees fast and pray. But the, Jesus' disciples are ha- all happy and they eat and drink. And so Jesus brings an illustration, remember, of, hey, when the bridegroom is here, the attendants are all happy. It's when he leaves that they fast, and I'm here. But then he says, the text says, he spoke to them a parable. And he told that difficult parable about tearing a piece of cloth from a new garment and putting that new cloth on an old garment does that, he'll tear the new piece from the old, and it doesn't match, and it was all complicated. And then the old wine and the new wine and the old wineskins and the new wineskins and all of that. But Jesus had a message, a sermon, and he used that short parable as an illustration. We come to Luke chapter 6, the next chapter, and he, it's his famous didactic, excellent sermon on the mount, all kinds of propositional truth. And the parables in the midst of that sermon are used as little illustrations. You remember, they're called parables. And like the parable of the blind guide, it's one line. And the pupil and the teacher and the speck and the log, remember that? And and the good tree and the bad tree. And then in the next chapter, Jesus is talking to 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 the... to the leaders uh, who have rejected him the, the, and that represent the men of this generation. And, and they're, they're, they're spoken directly to them in the context of the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of John the Baptist. And Jesus tells a parable about the children who play in the marketplace. Remember, one played the flute, but you did not dance. And one sang a dirge, and you did not weep. And then Jesus makes his point. And at the end of that chapter, of chapter 7, Simon the Pharisee, there's a short comparison, a short parable about the moneylender and the two debtors, one who owed 500 and one who owed 50, and and the lender graciously forgave them both, so who's going to love them the most, and all of that. But all of these are forms of parables as illustrations, short illustrations giving insight in the midst of a great deal of preaching material. But let's observe something of what happens in Luke chapter 8. Something is happening here in Luke chapter 8. Something unique is beginning. Look at verse 4. It says, 
that Jesus speaks by way of a parable. And so the parable is an extended analogy. The parable itself is a message. Something has shifted as we come to Luke chapter 8 in the ministry of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you look at the parable of the soils and Matthew and, and Mark, and you take the time to do that, as one has said rightly, in all the Gospels, it's a major turning point in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ at this point in Luke chapter 8. So in Matthew chapter 13, verse 34, just listen to this verse, Matthew 13, 34. It's the same chapter as the parable of the soils in Matthew. And many other parables are given. And Jesus is just parable after parable. That's his preaching. It's parable. And he says in verse 34, all these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables. And he did not speak to them without a parable. I think we need to realize this. We are so used to having Jesus interpret the parables for us, to give us the meaning that we don't feel the impact of the teaching of Jesus Christ to the crowds on that day. And so let's find out what a good number of that large crowd heard on that day, which leads us then to the third heading, answering the third question, the description. What is the parable of the soils? What did Jesus preach that day? Here it is. Now, this is unfortunate because I want to just read this, and perhaps I should for the sake of time, because that would make my point. But we are so, we don't have any agricultural background. You have to understand, when the people heard this story, they would immediately know the background of what he's talking about. We don't. Unfortunately, we don't live in that day, so let me give you just a little bit of information. When a, a sower is a farmer, the seed, right, they got a little, see, I'm not a farmer either. <laughs> My hands are, Don, you should do this part, and then I'll take over after, but they have a, probably a leather thing up front, satchel, is that good? That I like to, it's right there, it's got seed in it, and they'd reach down and grab this seed, and they'd walk, they'd try to do it in rows, but they'd have a field, and they'd kind of liberally scatter the seed around. They'd have their, their land, and that seed would be scattered around, it wouldn't be planted perfectly, and it would hit some good soil and some bad soil. And there's basically four types of soil that you see. Let's look at it. There's a hard soil in verse 5. As he sowed... Okay, now he's telling his parable. As he sowed, right, scattering seed, some fell beside the road and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. So if you owned a field, you'd have roads, right, around your field, just like we have today, but people would walk on them, animals would walk on them, that, that soil would get hard-pressed. Sometimes you'd even have roads right through your field. And so they'd, people walk on it would press it down. So the seed that fell on that, it'd get trampled on, and it wouldn't sink in to the soil, so the birds would come get a free meal. Rocky soil. Look at verse 6. Other seed fell on the rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Okay, so the rocky soil, quickly, 
would look really good on the outside because it's not like there were big boulders all over the place. That's what we see in our head. What it really means is there was a kind of soil that looked good when you looked at it, but about a foot down or so, seven to inches or so, there was a layer of limestone. And so the plants would grow down, but then the roots would hit this layer of rock and they would be then devoid of nutrients and water and they'd die. Then there is the thorny soil. Look at verse 7. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. And so the farmers sowing seed, and some is scattered on looks to be fairly decent ground. But the problem is that fairly good soil is sharing the soil with thorns and thistles, and those thorns and thistles are hungry. And they suck all the nutrients and all the water more quickly than the grain. And so they grow up quickly and they crowd out the nutrients for that soil. But then there's the good soil in verse 8. Other seed fell into the good soil and it grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. And so there was some good soil that the seed would deeply dive into take root and grow, 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 springing up a couple months later, three months later, and then producing fruit at harvest time, a good full measure, lots of good fruit to eat and to sell for livelihood. Okay, large crowd from various cities, sermon over. Except for one line. Cried out loudly by Jesus. Probably more than once. To him who has ears to hear, let him hear. And that's it. The sermon is over. And that leads us to some questions. To our fourth heading, it leads us to, and a question. Then let's go to the admonition. What does Jesus' exhortation about having ears to hear mean? Jesus is challenging the crowd to move beyond superficial hearing. Notice carefully, this is true, that not everyone in that great crowd that day hearing that parable had ears to hear. Not everyone did. There's a large crowd from various cities. Why are they coming to Jesus? Why are they coming to him? Why are they there? It's a mixed crowd. Why are they coming? Well, some are coming, coming to him because they've heard that Jesus has the power uh, to whip up a, perhaps a revolt against Rome, and they think perhaps they've found their next politician to support and vote for. Some people are there because they've heard rumors, and, and they've been hearing that there's some incredible miracles that were taking place in the ministry of, of Christ, and they want to get through this speech and get to the good stuff and see if they could see an incredible miracle. And... Some people were there because they personally needed a physical touch from the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe he will come to me. Maybe he will heal me. And so there, they're getting through 
the teaching time to get in that line and to be healed. Perhaps there are some who are there who are just plain curious. There's a big show in town tonight, and they, for one, are not going to miss or be late for the concert. Right, Brandon? They're going to be there for that concert. They're curious. Everybody is talking about this. Anybody who's everybody, anybody who is whatever, let's skip that one. Let's just go with everybody is talking about it. Perhaps there are people there who are there for one reason, to take notes, to trap Jesus in his words. They've got years to hear certain things. So maybe he'll say something stupid they can use as evidence against him for people who are already plotting to do away with our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the crowd that day have what my kids call selective hearing. I'm ashamed to tell this illustration, but I'm going to do it. Lots on, a lot of things are on my mind. So I literally hear people talk, wah, 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 I actually hear the words. It's weird. But I do not respond right away. I maybe will respond five minutes later like I've been in a time warp. It's strange. My kids think it's funny sometimes. They call it selective hearing. Many in the crowd were like this. They heard what they wanted to hear, but they didn't have ears to hear. But there were some in that crowd, not just the twelve. Compare the other passages. There were some in the crowd who were burdened by their own sin. There were some in that crowd who heard that this could be the one this could be the coming one, the promised Messiah. There were some in that crowd that were hanging in every word that came out of the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ. There were some in the crowd that were longing for forgiveness, that were longing for true freedom from their sins. There were some in the crowd who realized that they were unworthy and were starting to realize, they were starting to hope that this could be the worthy one. This could be the Messiah. This could be one like a son of man. There were some in the crowd who had ears to hear. Let them hear this parable, the word of the Lord. They were hanging on his every word. And you know what they got that day? They got a parable. But they got more than a parable. They, they received ears to hear. And they could take the truth that they heard that day and they would build upon the truth that they had heard. And God, the Holy Spirit, would meet them there. And to those who had been given much, more would be given. And to those who thought they had it, that would be taken from them as well. Be careful how you listen, Jesus says, after the parable of the soils. So if you've been tracking thus far, you are teed up, I hope, to help us with the fifth and final heading and tackle one of the most difficult verses in all of the Word of God. You're ready for it. Here we go then. Sip of water. Fifth heading. The question. The question. Why 
are only the disciples given the meaning of the parable of the soils? That's the question. Here we go. I think we misunderstand Jesus' teaching by means of parables. We have this kind of approach. Now listen carefully. Let me quote one preacher named Davis. Here's our approach to parables. Quotes, Jesus uses the common, well-known, simplest, and familiar items of the country and village life to make divine truth plain and clear. He refused to be involved with labored, technical, doctrinal points. There's no complicated jargon or five-syllable theological words. He tells you about a farmer. What could be clearer and closer to home than that? Then the, not me, but be mad at him. But then David says, that is pretty much rubbish, end quotes. Now, you may disagree with what Pastor Davis is saying because you look back in verses 4 through 8 and say, this is all very obvious. I don't even need a background. It's all very obvious what this means. So you maybe disagree. But that's because we've read the explanation in verses 11 through 15 for since I was 27 and got saved over and over and everyone likes to preach on this. We have and we're... We are bringing the explanation into our minds. As Davis said, and he's meaner than I am, it's because you've cheated. And, you've sub- and you're subversively pulling in verses 11 through 15 into the smoke-filled room of your mind, end quotes. But if you only had verses 4 through 8 by themselves, would you get the point? And so there's a certain sense that the original audience would be kind of scratching their heads What in the world is Jesus talking about? What is the seed? Who is the sower? You call this simple? We picked up on this because the disciples ask him something in verse 9 that needs the explanation. Look at verse 9. His disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant. Okay? And look at what Jesus says in verse 10. Put your seatbelts on. This is the Bible. This is not, I wouldn't write it. It's the Bible. And he said, to you, and it's emphatic in the original language, to you it has been granted, that's a gift, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to the rest, it is in parables, watch this, so that, what is so that? So that is a purpose clause. Here's the reason it was given to the rest in parables. Here's the reason that Jesus from about Luke 8, from about Matthew 13, spoke in parables predominantly to the large crowds. So that, then he quotes Isaiah chapter 6, seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. This is a keep you up at night verse. Is it not? Understanding is a divine gift given to the disciples, more than just the twelve, more than just the twelve, given to the disciples to really know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, how to enter into the kingdom, the powerful spiritual reign of God in their heart. But to the rest, he spoke in parables so that 
the parables had an effect of concealing the truth. Not making it more clear, but concealing the truth. So that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. What in the world is going on here? Well, to understand, we must go back to the original context of the quote in the book of Isaiah chapter 6. So we're going to take the time, stay in Luke, please, and go to Isaiah chapter 6, which is page 689 if you have a pew Bible, a black pew Bible in front of you or underneath you. Go back to Isaiah chapter 6, and let's work on this together. Isaiah chapter 6, find verse 8. Okay? Isaiah's commission. Verse 8 of Isaiah chapter 6. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand. Look at this. I love that line. Understand with their what? Their hearts and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Houses are without people. And the Lord, what, I'm sorry, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. I love this. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will, be, will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. And so Isaiah was going to have a ministry of preaching. But that ministry would go to the Jews in Isaiah's day, and that preaching would fall on deaf ears. The preaching would become a judgment on the people of Israel for their sin. And yet, there would be a remnant who heard. They would truly hear. They would truly believe. There would be a root of rebirth and regrowth of Israel in that future and in the future to come. You see, the ministry of the words of the prophet Isaiah were words that would not be in great measure understood, and, and that would lead to the judgment of the rebels in Israel. And you have to understand, and I'm going to prove it to you, you have to understand that for year after year after year after year, the people of Israel heard the law of God. They had been faithfully ministered to with priests and prophets and some good kings from time to time. But the book Isaiah starts out in the first six chapters with the people of Israel. The baseline of verse 10 in Luke chapter 8 is the people of Israel as hardened sinners before God. I want you to see it. Turn back a few pages to Isaiah chapter 1. You'll be hopefully convinced. Now, track with me. Follow quickly. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 2. Listen. Does that sound familiar? Hear, verse 2, for the Lord speaks. Did you see that? But they have, verse 2 
of chapter 1, they have revolted against me. End of verse 3. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Verse 4. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Verse 5. As you continue in your rebellion, the whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. Verse 6, in the middle, there is nothing sound in it. Oh, I love verse 9. Unless the Lord of hosts had left a few survivors. Oh, the promise of the remnant. And then the call to listen, the call to repent in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God. Look at verse 13 of 1. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. The end of verse 13, I cannot endure iniquity. Verse 15 in the middle, yes, even though you multiply prayers, what? I will not listen. But then there's a call. There's a call to repent in verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. But they did not listen. They did not repent. And so verse 25 happens. I will also turn my hand against you. Verse 25. But there's chapter 2. There's future hope. There's future hope for Israel. Then and not yet. For it's all typological, if you can handle that sort of talk. For Israel, there is hope, but not now. And there's a call to repent in verse 5. Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Chapter 2, flip over to verse 8. Their land has also been filled with idols. They worship the work of their hands. Here's the real issue in their hearts. Verse 17 of chapter 2. The pride of man. There it is. The pride of man will be humbled. And what's the major problem with the people? Oh, it was all the people. But you know what the biggest problem was? The leaders. Sound familiar? In Jesus' day? Look at, chat, look at Isaiah chapter 3. It's all about dealing with the wicked leaders. For behold, verse 1, the Lord God of hosts is going to remove from J- Jerusalem and Judah. And then he lists off the leaders in verse 2. Mighty man, warrior, judge, prophet, diviner, elder, and so on. All the leaders. Why? Verse 8 of chapter 3. Here's why. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen. Watch this. Because their speech... And their actions are against the Lord to rebel against His glorious presence. But, praise God for chapter 4, there's a remnant. In verse 2, in that day of chapter 4 of Isaiah, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. And there's on that branch and that vine, there will be fruit of the earth, will, will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel, but not now. Because chapter 5 and verse 2 at the end, he expected this to produce good grapes, but it only produced worthless ones. And God says in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 4, look, I've done everything I can do. What, what more would, look at verse 4. What more was there to do f- for my vineyard that I have not done to it? And so there's, more, there's judgment. Look at the end of verse 15 of chapter 5. The eyes of the proud also will be abased. 
But the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment. And I want you to see chapter 5, verse 24. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses into flame, so their root will become like rot and their blossom blow away as dust. Why? Here it is. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. Watch this. And despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. On this account, the anger of the Lord has burned against the people. And then Isaiah chapter 6 comes. In this context, with the great vision of the glory of the Lord sitting upon his throne. And we know from the book of John that this visible presence of the glory of the Lord sitting upon the throne is none other than the pre-incarnate Christ himself in his glory, standing before one of the remnant, before Isaiah himself, who had responded to the word of God. He had responded to the vision and glory of God, to the call to holiness, to the word of God, differently than the others. He said something differently. He was humbled. He was not full of pride. He said, woe is me, verse 4. I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And then he sees not just his own sin, but he sees his Savior. And he says, for my eyes have seen the glory of the Lord of hosts. Here is one. His name is Isaiah, who has the ears to hear. Here is one of the remnant who is now the commissioned one who stands there forgiven, but will take up the mantle of the preaching ministry to Israel, who had already time and time again rejected the word of God. They had hardened their own heart like Pharaoh of old, and now in an act of divine judgment, the word of God would come, and they would listen, but would not perceive, and they would look, but they would not understand, and they would be judged for their own sin. And so it is in the book of Luke. Listen carefully. Listen carefully. Go back now to Luke chapter 8. So it is in the book of Luke. Oh, there's so much to talk about if you like comparing old and new. Jesus came preaching, did he not? The commissioned one, here am I, send me. He came preaching the word of God. And what happened? He came preaching, I think, a really good sermon from Isaiah 61 to his hometown of Nazareth. Tell me how his first sermon went. He almost got thrown off, eh? Sermon number one. How did the people respond to him? His own, I would say, family and friends, or at least friends. I'm not throw his family under the bus, but maybe I should. So, Jesus had been speaking very clearly in his ministry. Not in extended parables. Very clearly speaking the word of God. Using parables as illustrations to bring light to the crowds. But the leaders of Israel, what did they do? The leaders of Israel had rejected their Messiah by this point. They were already plotting his destruction in Luke chapter 6. Just like Simon the Pharisee. With the, remember the woman who reigned on the feet of Jesus? Simon in the last chapter doesn't respect Jesus. He's trying to capture him in his words. But from this time on, Jesus begins to speak in parables. Speaking in parables very carefully, just like in the book of Isaiah. The greater Isaiah is here. 
And the parables, just like then, functioned as a form of judgment for unrepentant Israel. A judgment because of the hardness of their heart demonstrated already in the past in the book of Luke, rejecting the Word of God. And so this is the purpose of the parables to Israel at this time in redemptive history. God, in judgment, removes the benefit of revelation. As one has said, alluding to Isaiah, that the concealing... The concealing takes place for those, and I would say only those, who are resistant to hearing, an obstinate nation facing judgment and exile for refusing to respond properly to the word of the living God. Now, we know the rest of the story to give you some hope because there's remnant in Isaiah. We know... That God even in this, this is great. The rest of the story is that Israel in the hardness of her heart and God's gracious plan would reject their Messiah and crucify him so that Gentiles could be grafted into the rich root of the blessings of the gospel, the blessings and the rich spiritual promises of Israel. Did you realize concealment in order to exercise compassion? And we also know that there's a remnant in Israel even now who will at the end know God's grace and a spirit of supplication will be poured out upon Israel in the end, a fountain open for sin, and so all Israel will be saved. D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, is absolutely right. And whenever you're not, you have a hard verse, always quote good scholars. D.A. Carson is absolutely right, and I want you to listen carefully. Quotes, we are seeing in Israel... In the ministry of Jesus Christ, a very sad and often repeated pattern of Israel's rejection of the plan of God, in quotes. Do you remember the verse in the last chapter, in verse 30, chapter 7, when it talks about the Pharisees who rejected God's purpose for themselves? It's referring to all of this. That's the interpretation of that verse, I think. We see in Stephen's words, remember Stephen, he's getting stoned and he's preaching, to the leaders, mostly of Israel, in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, listen to this, Acts seven fifty-one. just write it down, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in the heart and ears, did you hear that? And ears, you are forever opposing the Holy Spirit just as your ancestors used to do, end quotes. And so in the, the use of parables that begins now in the ministry of Jesus, Carson is right when he says that Jewish leaders at the time of Jesus in particular are to be blamed as were the leaders of Israel in the time of Isaiah, end quotes. Already. In Luke chapter 6, they were discussing what they might do to our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, for Israel in Jesus' day, you have to understand the order of this. The Jewish people in the ministry of Jesus, especially leaders from their own hard hearts, their own greedy hearts, their own jealous hearts, had willfully hardened their hearts against the truth. And so as a result of that, God, through parables, judiciously, judicially hardened them so that they could not understand the truth and act of judgment. Yes, the purpose of parables and this 
very difficult verse that keeps us up at night must be understood in light of the Jewish people in the book of Isaiah and in the context of the book of Luke in the ministry of Jesus. But as we close, there is a timeless principle for us here today. Are you ready? Get ready. I want you to listen. Today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Be careful how you hear. Be careful how you respond to the word of the living God. Do not have selective hearing today. Do not be distracted by your phone today. Do not be daydreaming about sports and pleasure today. Today, if you hear the voice of the Word of God, do not harden your heart. Do not take the preaching of the Word of God lightly. Do not say to Jesus, I'll get to you when I get to you. Take a number. I'll get to you after high school. I'll get to you after college. I'll get to you after I get my business started. It's a lot of work. I'll get to you after I find my wife. I'll get to you after I find my husband. No. You do not know when the preaching of the Word of God will shift to the strange work of judgment. It's just like the book of Romans in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. If you're fast, you can turn there. I don't have time for you to just listen. This is the wrath of abandonment. For the wrath of God... Romans chapter 1 verse 18 is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men, watch this, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because they have revelation and they don't deal with it because that which is known about God is evident with them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools in exchange for the glory of the incorruptible God, for an image of the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And verse 24, therefore God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. This is the wrath of abandonment. And if God abandons those who do not respond to the light of general revelation and creation, Might he not abandon those who persistently suppress and reject the light of his special revelation in the preaching of the word? There is a principle here. Be careful how you listen. To listen week in and week out. To hear the truth. It's a privilege to hear the word of God. 
But more importantly, how we respond to the light that is given us is so crucial. No wonder Jesus says in verse 18, Oh, be careful how you listen to the word of God. For whoever has to him more shall be given, but whoever does not have even what he thinks he has shall be taken from him. Oh, come to the word of God with the humility of Isaiah chapter 66. In verse 2, when God speaks about his creation, and he says, For my hand have made all these things, but all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. My friend, who I consider my pastor, I would say, His name is Pastor Lloyd Johnson of Twin Cities Bible Church. He's dying of cancer. His days are coming to a close. He very recently wrote an email to his church. He's preached his last sermon. I'm almost certain of it. It was three weeks ago or so. Listen to it. These probably were his last words to his congregation. I want you to listen to them carefully. He said in his letter, quotes, Brethren, Please, as Mary, always sit at the feet of Jesus and let his words be the end of the matter, end quotes. And he goes on to say, quotes, I hear the words of Jesus to the repentant thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. To me, he says, this is the end of the matter. For the thief and I are alike, worthy only of death. We are both simply believing in Jesus. Oh, what a precious gift to hear the word of God, to see your sin, and to see Jesus as the thrice holy one, to respond not just I'm an unclean man, but to go on in trusting what Isaiah 6 says, that the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. And brothers and sisters, the burning coal the branch of the Lord, the stump of Israel, the true vineyard is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you would receive this one, he is the one who took upon himself the sin of your hard heart. He is the one who took upon himself the wrath of abandonment when he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me. And praise God if you would respond to the word in this way, that you have ears to hear. You have been set free because you know the truth and the truth will make you free. For if this one, the God of Isaiah chapter 6, the Lord of glory, set you free, you will be free indeed. Amen? Let us pray.